Hey everybody, welcome back to episode 62 of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast, where we work to center our practice with solid pedagogy and build a guild of educators dedicated to designing a difference in student experience. Thanks for taking the time to listen. We have the Brandon Carson. You're going to enjoy this one. We'll catch you on the other side. Two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. It is my honor to host Brandon Carson. Brandon, you got a great last name. Um, and uh, Praxis Pedagogy, for those of you who don't know, is the podcast where we work to center our practice with solid pedagogy. And we're working towards building a guild of educators dedicated to designing a difference in student experience. That is a mouthful. I have to say that every time now. But uh, it's true, and it's and it's uh, and it's right, and we're on our way. So, Brandon, thanks for taking the time to be here today. Really appreciate you uh, being on the show. It is all my pleasure, and I agree. Carson is a wonderful last name. When I was with the campus Ontario, when we were at BC campus, I'd make the joke to some people saying, "Oh yeah, he's my brother. He's my cousin, and uh, he's over there in BC. I'm over here in Ontario." That's awesome. <laughs> Beautiful. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, who you are, where, where you're working right now, and uh, and what kind of got you into education in the first place? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so uh, my name is Brandon Carson. I am living in North Oshawa uh, and working at Durham College as my main employer. Uh, there I work in our Center for Academic and Faculty Enrichment, supporting faculty with the use of educational technology. I also teach part-time there in a variety of different programs, uh, mostly on the topic of web design, web development, and other digital technologies. And now with the global pandemic and everything kind of shifting online, I'm also teaching at Fanshawe College. And that has been an amazing experience in their Kinlan School of Business. I've been teaching a web design course there and as well as a, a course. It's, it's technically a course, but it's called the Employer Rounds. And it's a, it's a really neat experience. If you've ever watched uh, Grey's Anatomy or any of those shows that are involved doctors and you see them do the rounds, they've kind of taken that concept uh, and use it to train all of their students. So marketing students who are learning about web design, SEO, uh, other forms of digital marketing, and a variety of different other um, marketing approaches. So it's a pretty cool thing with seeing the rounds. It was Rhonda Payne. She's the uh, program coordinator in the program who came up with this idea. And I've never seen it before. And it is just seeing what the students learn. They have faculty members with all these different areas of expertise. And they're, they're bringing that expertise to the employer round. So let's say one of the groups of students is working on a, uh, working on a web design project. They have to redesign a website for a client. Well, I get brought into that because my background's in web design, but there may be another one that uh, they have to create a social media campaign. Another faculty member whose backgrounds in social media comes in and they support the students throughout the process. And the clients are all um, throughout the London, Ontario region. So it's a really cool approach. It's uh, probably been the most exciting part of education for the last four, probably four months for me, getting to learn more about this. Yeah, when you think about it, think of all the different ways it could go. Like, right? So you could do so many different ways. We're doing it in marketing, but like computer programmers, you could do the same thing there. Um, you have a lot more background in trades, obviously. You might even be able to think of ways you could incorporate something like that into trades too. So it's kind of like a co-op, but it's housed inside the institution. So we're basically running a digital ad agency, our digital marketing agency, sorry, inside of Fanshawe. That is that is very cool because it, it's it's almost like it's reverse interdisciplinary 
right? Where instead of, instead of a student population having all these different backgrounds, you're getting faculty coming in with all these different backgrounds and it's, that's amazing. So they're a part of this, this team, this team experience where like yourself and another faculty member comes in and another one comes in and they, they get all this expertise and perspective on this one project and, and they get help from all of you guys to do this. That's, that's outstanding. Yeah, it's neat. So right now there's me and another faculty. I'll talk about our individual block of the course. We have about 30 students. Uh, we break them down into groups of either two to four students and everywhere in between. And I think there's nine, nine clients we're dealing with right now uh, with this part of the semester. We do three rounds this semester. And uh, so they get four weeks to be working through the entire process of this project, uh, which is pretty cool. And there's me and another faculty member who are kind of leading all the, the students, but then we can also tap on the shoulders of other faculty members to come in and help with certain projects as well. So it's, it's really cool. And the students get access to all this different expertise while doing this. So it's, again, it's a lot like going and doing a placement, except you you're doing it in house and you have the expertise of all those different faculty members to rely on, to support you with doing the work for these companies. And these are real live companies. These are not case studies or anything like that. These are real live companies that are going to implement this, this tech or this, this end product into their, into their system. Exactly. And in some cases it could be the students just doing a report up saying, uh, these are the recommendations we suggest. In other cases, it's the students who are taking the report they created. And then in the next round, implementing those changes for the client, because the client may not have a marketing department to rely on, to do this type of work. So it's, uh, it's startups, it's smaller businesses, larger businesses, um, for profit, not for profit. It's a, it's a big variety of different types of organizations we're dealing with. That's amazing. Is there any financial commitment on the client to do this with you? No, no. It's uh, so when the client has the money, it can be a little bit nicer. So uh, I'll keep going back to the web design things with uh, that being my background. If they have a bit of uh, a budget here, it could be that if you're doing a WordPress website, you can purchase some of the, the paid themes or plugins to support the, uh, the client. Because our students will have a bit of a background in web design, but they're not full web developers. So they're not going to fully uh, develop a site from scratch, but they can leverage using a theme and plugins to, to get what the client needs in the end. That's amazing. Yeah. So do you find yeah, that the that last work, part? Sorry, go ahead. Do you find that that work is informing your, uh, your in, uh, instructional design work at, at, uh, at Durham? Um, not yet, but it has my brain going multiple ways of just different things you could incorporate. Right. So I, I could see so many different programs being leveraged, something like this, but it's also a very unique, unique course that they offer at a fan show. I haven't seen this anywhere else. So when Rhonda Payne, the program coordinator told me about this, I'm like, this is really, really cool. It'll be interesting to see the, uh, the results from this. So this is the first time, this is the first cohort going through this model. Oh no, they've been doing it for a bit. I'm just uh, new to Fanshawe again, because of the global pandemic right now, like Fanshawe, you're from BC. So I should explain, uh, Fanshawe college is probably four and a half hours away from me driving. Oh, so yeah, I would never be able to work at this institution normally. Right. Um, it just so happened that, uh, during the fall semester, their associate Dean had shared a post on LinkedIn saying they're looking for a web development professor. And I said, Oh, 
this set could work it perfect because everything's online right now. I'm sure that they wouldn't mind someone who's a bit farther away and it just all worked out. And again, I've loved my experience there. They've been a great group to work with. The faculty have been so supportive, admin, their support staff, just everyone works as a family over there. It's a really nice experience. That makes a huge difference when, when everyone's cohesive like that, isn't it? Especially when it's online and you're not able to see each other like physically face to face. Yeah. And so supportive, like getting calls from the associate dean, getting calls from a faculty, um, just supported the entire way through, which is nice. Uh, and even like a really small thing, uh, come Christmas time, got handwritten cards from their, uh, their associate deans and deans just wishing us Merry Christmas. I'm like, that's so cool because you have to rethink how to do this when everything's fully online. Right. So it's not like you're in the office and you can just hand a card to somebody. So to get that in the mail, like it, it meant a lot to me because it shows that you put some thought into how are we going to still wish everyone a happy holidays this year? Um, it wasn't just a standard email and don't get me wrong. The emails are nice to receive as well, but, uh, getting that hand card that where you can see that they wrote it themselves. It was like, Oh, that made me feel good inside. (laughs) Well, it's that personal touch, right? And, uh, that's, that's amazing. So, um, how, how did you, uh, how did you get into, uh, education? Like what, what was the transition point for you to think, Oh, maybe I want to go and teach, or maybe I want to go and help others with their courses and help them teach. That's a great question. Um, I got really lucky with starting in higher ed at a very young age. So when I finished my program in web development at Durham college, I did my placement in their communications and marketing department. And it just so happened someone was going on a mat leave just as uh, I was finishing up my uh, placement there. So I ended up being able to cover a maternity leave and started working at Durham college before I even crossed the stage for graduation and have basically been there since. Uh, so I worked in comms and marketing for six years. And as part of working in comms and marketing, we would take in placement students just like I was to, uh, to help during the, uh, mostly the summer and, uh, early spring when they'd be doing their placements, sometimes we could keep them on a little bit longer or take in work study students who were students who were still active in their program. And just was interacting with students that often in the program and made me realize and liking the mentoring aspect of it, it made me realize I'd love to start teaching. So I started teaching in the continuing education department, I want to say it was 2012 and then started teaching in the full-time day program, maybe in 2014. And I just kind of kept going since it's a, uh, I always say it's kind of selfish. It's a rewarding feeling to teach someone. Right. So like, I, I love it because it, it just, the feeling it gives me to, to teach students, it's, it's amazing. And seeing them grow, seeing them go to industry, hopping on LinkedIn and just seeing what all past students are doing. It's just brings that feel good feeling to you, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, and, and humbling too, that you were a part of that growth process for somebody else, right? Exactly. And working in the communications and marketing department, my background was in web development. Uh, and I could see some overlap where it could go into e-learning and educational technology. So we have a center for academic and faculty enrichment at our institution that supports faculty with, uh, with that. And they also used to do some web development work. So at that point I said, okay, I want to start getting more background in the education side of things and preparing myself for that. So I, uh, enrolled in the adult education and digital technology program at Ontario tech university and did that part time for, I believe that was four years. Yeah. Four or five years. And then, uh, 
went over to a master's at Royal Roads University right afterwards. So just as I was finishing up my undergrad, that's when I got a chance to work in the teaching and learning center. So all that education, it, I was great. Durham College uh, helped fund that education as well, which was nice. And Ontario Tech University actually shares a campus with Durham College. So um, it's it's one big campus shared between the university and college. And I'm also doing part, I didn't mention that earlier, I'm doing part-time work there as well right now, working with their EI lab out of their faculty of education. So they're, uh, they're great. I found Ontario Tech and Royal Roads took a very similar approach to uh, to online teaching. So it's been a great experience all the way through. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and do, doing online education uh, as a student can be daunting, right? How did you find your master's? Because that was that was all online, right? The whole thing. Yeah, same with my undergrad. Uh, the undergrad definitely prepared me for it. It also helps me be a better teacher online because I see what worked for me, what didn't work for me, and also just knowing let's communicate with our students regularly to find out what's working, what's not, because what works for one class may not work for another. So at Ontario Tech, it was neat because they had uh, mandatory synchronous sessions and they'd give it so you could go up multiple times in the day. So let's say I had a class on Tuesday, I could choose to go to the virtual session either at noon to one, six to 7 p.m., or there could be an eight to 9 p.m. as well. So it kind of works to your schedule as well, which is really nice. So some weeks I might be able to make the lunch time session, but maybe I have a faculty meeting that's making it so I can't attend uh, one week. I could just choose to hop on the nighttime session and still get that synchronous session with the faculty member. Railroads was a bit different that way. Some of it was synchronous, some of it not. And uh, I, I like having the synchronous sessions. I think those are important. Even if the faculty member isn't, um, it's more of a Q and A. Like I enjoy that. If you can just at least come in, pop in for a Q and A and I'm getting that at the basket right now. I'm doing a grad certain instructional design there right now. And they offer that. And it's so helpful to me every two weeks, they do a session at night. We can come in and just ask the faculty member any questions we have. And I like those synchronous aspects of it. It gets you to get to connect with your peers a little bit more as well as some time to connect with your faculty member. That's, um, that's, that's interesting because, um, is it the same, is it the same faculty member who does it from 12 to one and six to seven and eight to nine or the, those time slots? Is it the same faculty member doing those virtual sessions? Yeah, it is. And, uh, the nice part with that, it, I should say in most cases, it is. certain cases, there may be a conflict in that faculty member's schedule and they may have the TA step in that's happened a couple times, but for the most part, yeah, it was that faculty member was there at all those specific times and it was awesome. It, and I can see how you can make it work out in the end, because if you think about it, if, if you're teaching a course, I'll give my, one of my courses as an example, I may have a three hour block course. Well, this faculty member is still teaching for three hours at that point, they're doing three, one hour blocks. And then the rest of the material is all, um, going to be reading journal articles, reading books, um, maybe some web blogs or watching uh, YouTube videos. So they did a great job from a multimedia standpoint of giving you the content in a lot of different ways. So really taking a UDL approach to the way they set everything up, which I thought was awesome. Cause I could choose if one week, I just really want to stick to the videos. I could stick to the videos. Other weeks it might be doing a little bit more reading. So you could really mix and match. That's great. That's amazing. Oh, gets me so excited when I hear stuff like that. So you finished your master's and, uh, overall process was awesome. Um, I follow you on Twitter and, and we have a, a good mu friend mutually. So, uh, got to listen to your thesis and stuff. What, did, what, what was, what were some key points 
uh, first tell it, let me back up first, tell us what your thesis was on and then share with us a couple key points from your thesis that you're still kind of got in your back pocket as you're walking through life right now. All right. I might get you to re-ask me those questions uh, again in a moment. I don't know if I can remember two in my head right now. <laughs> no uh, but first, I want to give a shout out to Ch our mutual friend, Chad. I want to give a big shout out. He was on Terry's podcast uh, a couple of years ago and gave me a shout out. So same thing back to him. He is doing amazing things since graduating. And uh, it's been so fun to watch his journey. My uh, thesis research, though, was on the barriers that faculty face to using open educational resources. And it all stemmed from my time at eCampus Ontario. I started working there on their Open at Scale project. Uh, I specifically was focusing on the business programs and that was gonna have, um, we were focusing on shifting nine business courses that were common between all 24 Ontario colleges to have open educational resources available for them. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, why wouldn't they shift? What would make them not want to shift? And that's what kind of really focused my research on well, what barriers do they face when they want to start using OER. So with that, I, uh, I worked with my thesis supervisor, George Valencianos, and uh, we worked through the process of uh, coming up with the high-level research question, which was what do Ontario College business faculty, or what barriers do Ontario College business faculty face um, when attempting to use OER? And I also wanted to know what can help them overcome those barriers. So were there lived experiences that some of these faculty members had with overcoming the barriers that they faced or did they have thoughts in their head of what may, might work? So it was a really cool process. Uh, the REB was a little intense. So there are, uh, as you heard, 24 Ontario colleges. That's a lot to deal with. Uh, there was a form you could complete ahead of time. It's called a multi-site form. And it's supposed to make the REB process at each institution a little bit easier afterwards, but by no means is it you fill this out, you get approval and you can just do the research at all these institutions. So it was a lot of work. Um, and this was also right as the pandemic was starting. Uh, <laughs> I was going through this process. Like it wasn't so challenging enough, right? Oh, let's throw this little yeah. curveball at Brandon and see what happens. Yeah, exactly. And it has me wishing I would have uh, got to a couple things a little bit sooner, but with it all being new to me, it, uh, I kind of went at a certain pace and uh, looking back now, I'm like, oh, I just would have done this a couple months sooner. It would have made it so that maybe we could have got a couple more institutions in on this. But after going through the multi-state process and working with the other institutions and uh, George and me sitting down and selecting like this has to be the cutoff deadline of when uh, we say, okay, those are the institutions we're going to work with. I was able to get 12 out of the 24 colleges. Um, oh, and dude. 12, yeah. 12. Oh man. Yeah. So it, and I, I had this big spreadsheet of kind of outlining the whole processes of like, this is who you contact at this institution. Um, because that's the other thing after you get the multi-site, there's no clear, like, okay, now just send an email to this list and everything's going to work. I had to look up at each institution. Who do I contact? What's their process? And every institution has a different process which I just kind of find kind of funny. And a lot of their forms are the same. And I was like, why don't you guys just make one form that everyone fills out? It just makes everything so easier for everybody. Um, so I went through that process. We got 12 out of the 24 colleges, uh, 72 faculty members responded to the survey and nine faculty members agreed to a follow-up interview. Um, so it was a pretty cool experience. And it was also, I didn't have the amount of time I wish I would have could have put into this just because we were on a deadline for 
completing up uh, the master's program, right? So looking at this now, it makes me think like, oh, this would, I learned a lot from this and I'd like to take a similar research study in the future and make it leave just business programs, just do education as a whole. What barriers do faculty face and leave it open for everybody to do? And I think you can find a lot of really cool stuff from that at the end. Um, in the end though, after doing all those, it came to uh, five different recommendations. And that was uh, ensure faculty are aware and trained on OER, support the creation of high quality OER, um, have administrated, uh, administration encourage and support the use of OER, uh, include OER in institutional planning documents, and create a collaborative network to support um, the people who want to shift to OER. And some of the interesting things that kind of emerged when reviewing the data that made it come to these recommendations was looking through institutional planning documents. I think that four out of the 24 colleges had open educational resources listed in their strategic plan, their business plan, or their academic plan. And that's only four to the 24. And I'm like, I, I would have thought this number would have been higher. Um, a couple other things when you looked at administration, when it was who encourages you to use OER, it was often um, deans and associate deans or other types of uh, academic management, um, peers, the uh, teaching and learning center, the library. But when it came to presidents and vice presidents, the number was like, I think for presidents, it was under 1% of the respondents said that their president encouraged it. And then when it came to uh, VPAs, I think it was under 5%, if I can remember correctly. And that's, again, those are people you're looking to as leaders to kind of suggest to do things. I'm not saying that they should be enforcing it, but at least if you see your dean saying, yeah, you can use open educational resources, or sorry, you can see your VPA saying, yes, use open educational resources. It'll support your students in these ways. When you see a leader saying things like that, it's impactful. And an example I can bring up with that is Ontario Tech University. Their president, uh, Dr. Stephen Murphy, he regularly promotes the use of open educational resources. I've seen it on his Twitter. They have a, I hate to use the word commercial because I think there's a better word to use here, but they basically have a commercial for the institution and open educational resources is brought up multiple times in that commercial, maybe not by name, but the approaches to it. Yeah. I'll send it to you after this. It was uh, so watching that. I'm like, that is so cool. Um, like I think there was, might've been something along the lines of like the traditional textbook is taken away and they talk about more of their approach to doing it. And like, it's so cool. And Ontario tech also has an OER lab, uh, like they're teaching and learning center. They're, they're doing a lot right now with OER. So it's pretty cool to see a smaller university stepping up and taking this approach. Do you find that that's a common pathway that it, cause I know out here in the West coast, we, we have, we have several larger institutions that you know, they dedicate resources and people to it, but it's, it's by no means a pan Institute approach to it. It's, it's from my perspective, it's, it's very specialized and looking at special areas and there's a lot of work to be done, mostly in advocacy and awareness. Do you, do you find that it's the smaller colleges in, in your experience that are really picking up the, 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 the thought, the perspective, the value of open ed uh, resources, and even maybe even open ed pedagogy and moving in that direction. Uh, I'm not seeing it just out of the small, don't get me wrong. I'm seeing the small schools do some really cool stuff. I also see some of the bigger schools doing the same thing. I really think it happens at a leadership approach. You need it coming 
grassroots OER is amazing, but if it's coming from the top down, that's also really powerful because you know, you're supported to do that. Like I'll, I'll be honest, based on the faculty's collective agreement, I don't even know if it, like if the institution owns the material that faculty members are creating, are they allowed to just put a creative commons license on something if they're not the owners of it, the institution's the owner. So really you'd kind of need leadership's approval to be doing that. Yeah, for sure. So, and, and there's going to be a caveat there. Cause I know in some institutions, it, it almost seems like institutions will have their own take slant on, uh, curriculum development and, uh, um, the, the intellectual property issue. Right. And I know some institutions are very much of the, of the mindset that whatever you create is yours. It doesn't matter if you're going to use it in the class or if you're, if you've been, uh, given some release time, whatever you creates yours. And, you know, we would hope that you would share with the Institute or share with your colleagues that, you know, that, that'd be great all the way to, well, if we're going to release you to do uh, curriculum development or resource development, then whatever you develop becomes ours. And there's, there's, there's some, there's some significant concern with that because people are like, well, if I'm doing it for my course, why does it become the Institute's property? Right. Um, and so th there's, there's been a, a pullback, I think from, with certain faculty and I'm speaking very broadly here. Um, there's been a pullback from certain faculty going, well, wait a minute. If I'm, if I'm, you're not paying me for my thinking time necessarily, but that's still taking up time of my life. And, and, you know, if I'm with my family or if I'm off hours, I just don't flip a switch and go, okay, now I'm in creative mode. And now I'm not in creative mode. All of that funnels into what I'm going to be developing. Um, and I'm still putting all the, and I'm putting my name out with this stuff. Like, so it goes out and for peer review, or I start sharing it with other colleagues. There's a risk there that I get exposed is maybe not knowing as much as I think I know or what other people think I know. And so there's a lot of fear wrapped up in that. Um, so th there's, there's all these layers to it. So you make an interesting comment that um, with higher administration uh, support, there's not only a perspective that gets delivered with that, but there's actual funding that gets dedicated to that. Right. And I think that's where people are, are looking at and saying, well, who's, who's paying me to do this work. And if, if I'm doing it for my own course on my own time, why does it become an institute's piece of property? Yeah, you bring up a great point with that. And that's one thing in Ontario, I see different between the universities and the colleges. Um, the university, it seems to be more like you own the property or in the college system. It, it's not quite that way. And I see it from both perspectives, because if you're doing the work, let's say you're a full-time faculty member, and that's part of your, your workload for the week is doing your development for your course. Um, yeah, you, you've been given that time to do it. When I was the web developer for Durham college, when I did all my coding for the website, when I finished my job doing that, I couldn't just say, Oh, well, that's the website I developed. I'm going to take that and go over here now. No, the college owned that. Um, so in this case, when you're developing course materials and it's part of your, your workload for the semester, I, I can see why the college, yeah, they should own it. And same with uh, part-time that's in my part-time contract. It says any material I create it, the college owns that in the end. But like I said, in the end, because the college is the owner, I really don't know if I can create OER as part of my job because 
it, it's never been sent down through the institution to say that, yes, we support OER and you're able to do that. Or I can say at Fanshawe, um, I've received those messages from the uh, associate dean and deans saying that they're encouraging the use of OER. They want to see us do more with OER. Um, and they're going to be finding ways to fund those type of projects, which is always nice. So when you do your course development project that they would norm any institution would usually fund those anyways, they're just saying, as you do it, we're going to put an open license on that. And I'm all for that because the other part that kind of goes with that, Tim, that we, we don't always remember a lot of these institutions, they're, they're publicly funded, maybe not fully, but there's still public funds going into that. So it's taxpayers money going towards this. So in the end, it shouldn't just be the specific institution that owns it, it should be taxpayers money going into this. So it should be something that you are making openly available for other word, others to use afterwards. Yeah. And, and you're right. That's, that's part of the dark side of, of all of this curriculum development and intellectual property is, you know, most colleges, if not all colleges receive some kind of funding from the provincial government, which is taxpayers money. So I'm funding into this system. Why wouldn't this system and what they produce be made available to the whole system uh, together. And um, I, I'm of the mindset, public money, public access, right? Um, if, if I develop it on my own time, then it's up to me to decide whether I want to make that public or not. Uh, and, that, and that's fair. Um, but if it's, if it's a public institution creating curriculum for students in a, in a, in a, in a publicly funded especially in trades, because it, all of our seats are, are funded through the, uh, our training authority, which in essence is, is funded through the provincial government, right? And so even their seats are funded by that. And so it becomes very clear to me that there's this very, there's this very important piece that if, if we're being paid with public funds and we're responsible to the public for what we do, why are we hoarding all this material? And, and one of the big things that I come down to in talking with faculty across the province and, and reading the research is there's this deep-seated competitive nature in, in higher ed. And it's, well, if, if we share our curriculum with another institution, we run the risk of losing students to that other institution. And I'm thinking to myself, and this was happening before COVID, and I'm thinking to myself, really? like you're afraid of losing students. So in a trades perspective, let me put it in a trades perspective, the institution that I came from, we, I've been there 12 years. We've never canceled a class in the larger trades because of a lack of students. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Like there's a wait list to get through the apprenticeship program. And, and, you know, and that's unique for certain schools in, in larger centers in more Northern or remote centers, it's, it's going to be different, but the population's different. Right. But I find that those are the institutions in the remote and Northern uh, locations that are crying for material because their instructors aren't given time to develop anything because they don't have the, they don't have the capacity to develop anything. Right. Where some of these larger institutions where they have more than 10 faculty in one discipline, they're like, well, we can dedicate one or two people a year to, to develop some stuff, but we're not going to share it. <laughs> and it yeah, just and drives in those me cases, crazy. Like I can think international numbers. Yeah, those could be affected. But one stat I would love to see is when you think of a college and most of the time they're called community colleges for a reason, you're getting a lot of people from your specific area. So um, I'm going to show my poor geography skills here, but if I was to think over in BC and I was thinking of 
Vancouver and Victoria, if there was someone who's looking to go to school um, for plumbing and they're over in Vancouver, are they not probably just going to stick to their closer community college instead of going over to Victoria? Like, do, do you not find that your students are usually from a closer area? Yeah. And, and that makes total sense. And there are some outliers. So there, I've had students come to my classes as far north as Quinnell, Prince George, um, Dawson Creek area, which is, you know, to get down here is, you know, nine, 10, 11 hour drive. Right. So it, so they're not commuting, like they're, they're transplanting down. And then if I'm looking at steam fitters and gas fitters who work in the oil industry, yeah, they're, they're all up North. And so they're, they're coming down to the larger centers, but locally, I mean, locally, yeah, they're going to stick to their region. And, uh, um, it, that's a, that's a no brainer, but he, here's the thing. Here's the thing that I keep circling around on. If, if curriculum was the same across a discipline in a province. So, and it doesn't matter to me if it's, if it's business, cause I teach in the school of business too. I teach organizational behavior, uh, leadership, all, all that stuff. If the curriculum was same across the board, across institutions, across the province, what now becomes the deciding factor for a student to go to college X or college Y? From my perspective, it's experience. It's the student experience. That's what's going to help them decide. There may be some other factors like cost. And, and now that we're in COVID, travel is not really that much of a big deal. It may come back, right? Um, so location may be, may be a deciding factor, but you yourself just said you're teaching at an institution that's four and a half hours away from you that you would never had the opportunity to, to teach with uh, pre-COVID, but now you are. And so now we have students who have an opportunity to stay up north or to stay in the interior and to participate in a cohort that's in a larger center. So they may get experience and, and um, not experience, they may have the opportunity to rub shoulders with people from the same industry, but different aspects to it because, you know, trades is pretty broad. So when I, when I look at that and I talk to people about curriculum being a wash, if that, if that's a, if that's, if that's a, if that's a non-contributing factor to a student's decision to where they go, what, what does, what's the next biggest thing? And it's from what I can determine it's student experience. And then that now reflects onto the way our faculty teach and the way that they engage with students. And in my experience, faculty members don't like going there because now it's like, oh, so now you're telling me how to teach oh, and you're going to evaluate how I teach and what I teach. No, sorry. Doors closed. Not doing that. And I'm like, people we're missing the boat on this. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You, you brought up a good point there. So another thing I think students would care about, you, you briefly mentioned it cost. Imagine a program fully shifts to OER and another program at another institution doesn't, that can be some significant cost savings there. So I know with business, for example, I took a look at, uh, while I was at Royal Roads, I made one of my class assignments, look into the cost that an Ontario college student pays for their first year in business. And I looked at uh, one specific college and I think the cost was just under $1,200 for the year, uh, such as the first year. So if one institution does have OER and then the cost is zero and the other institution says, oh, we're doing all the textbooks and it's going to cost you 1200 bucks, that can be a good reason to, uh, to 
to go over to the institution that has the, uh, the OER, especially when you think of some of these areas, like if you look at Toronto, there's multiple different schools you can select from that can be all within a commute away. Right. Um, so when you start to think about that type of stuff, that could be a good selling point to why you would choose to go to that institution. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, I, I've mentioned it in a few podcasts already, but, uh, I've been reading, uh, the book, the new education by, uh, Kathy Davidson. And, uh, there's a chapter in that book called college for everyone. And I'll put a link in the show notes for the book for, for people who want to check out, check it out. The chapter, I'll, I'll be honest, when I first started reading the chapter, I'm like, okay, college for everyone. Like that seems just a little too out there for me because I'm, I'm, I'm a capitalist kind of person. I don't mind healthy competition to keep things robust. And I'm, and I'm going through and, I'm, and the, the points that she's making are just outstanding. And the one thing that, that really stuck out to me was this, that in community colleges in New York, the, the majority of students going to these colleges are coming from homes that make less than $25,000 a year. And uh, 20, less than $25,000 a year. And so when a student is faced with the choice of spending 40 bucks a week on transit or using that 40 bucks to buy food, that's a no brainer. It's a no brainer. They're, they're not going to continue their education if they're forced to make a choice between feeding their kid or going to school. So what this one institution did is, and this was a few years ago, they threw in a bus pass with the, the, the program. So if you sign up for this program, we give you a bus pass. Problem solved in that regard. Right. Uh, and, and then, and then they, they, they were already messing around with the flexible delivery options and, and allowing students to, to do work from home or, or to complete certain stuff off campus. Like they didn't have to be on campus the whole time during their program because it was, they understood that there's all this stuff called life behind the student that comes with them into an institution. And really what was driving this institution to do all these significant changes was the graduation uh, percentage. So they went from, I think, a 20 or 25% graduation success rate to over 50% within a year or two, right? And, and in that, well, in anybody's system, but in that system to jump that high into a success rate really captures the eyes of local government, state government, federal government, which now opens up more funding, right? And because she was doing the comparison between community colleges and, and universities like Stanford and um, uh, uh, Harvard and some other institutions where they're, they're, they're using their privilege uh, to weed people out because they only want people that they know will graduate, that there's very little to no risk of them dropping out because the more people graduate, the, the more funding that they'll receive or the more leverage they'll have in the system to, to continue, uh, you know, funding this big machine. And so I would recommend this book. It's called the new education, Kathy Davidson. And right now the outstanding chapter for me is chapter three college for everyone. Awesome. You said you're putting that in the show notes, right? I was looking all over for a pen as you said it, then you said that I'm like, perfect. And I'll write it down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I will put it in the show notes. Very good. So, 
Uh, as we're coming to the end, uh, Brandon, uh, thanks so much for, again, for taking the time. We haven't talked about any of the other questions that I had for you today, but so maybe we'll have you back in a future episode. That would be, that would be great if, if you'd be amicable to that. But um, what are you looking forward to in the next 12 months as we move forward uh, into this new era? What are you looking forward to the most? A really good question. Um, on a personal standpoint, again, I'm really enjoying my time just uh, working at a different institution. Being at Fanshawe has been so eye-opening. I've always just been a kind of one institution as a, an employee for so long, and you don't get to see how other schools do things. You can learn a lot. Like It makes me just realize we have so many part-time professors who teach at all these different institutions. We should be leveraging that to learn from them. Like Hear their stories of, oh, this is working really well over at X institution. Maybe we could be trying it at yours as well. Um, I don't think we do enough of that. You get to learn so much through doing this. So on a personal standpoint, that's been really uh, impactful for me, just seeing different approaches to education. Um, if I was to think about the system as a whole, as we uh, start to move forward and we see what the new normal is going to be over the next couple of years, I'm excited to see what happens with educational technology are we going to keep leveraging it because i think we're doing a great job with leveraging some of this technology right now and i really hope that when we go back to having more classes in person that we just don't shift back to the in-person way we used to do things and throw all the technology behind because i think that by incorporating the technology you can do a lot to support our students an example i like to use is uh at durham college with my teaching i use microsoft teams and the students now have a space that they can connect at any point 24 7 with each other and it, i think you get a lot more of that than just versus siloed emails when you can start talking in a team and the student can ask a question and everyone can see that question and everyone can hop on and answer and it's not buried in an lms um, within teams you can have the app on your computer you can have the app on your phone and I just started to see more communication and more um, collaboration happening, which was so powerful. So that's been my big thing I've really been promoting to faculty is use a tool like Teams to, to build those communities, get that community of learning happening. And it's not just faculty to student, there's peer to peer and everything in between. So I'm hoping to see a lot more of that. And I think that's really needed right now as we're online, because one of the examples I like to give is when students finish class before, they can hop over to the cafeteria, the library, uh, the computer commons, and they could connect with their peers on site. Or with some of these tools that we're using now, um, I'll use Bongo Virtual Classroom as an example. The students go there, they attend, or Zoom even, uh, they attend those sessions, they're there for that two to three hour class. And then the faculty member ends the Zoom and everything's just gone. You've you're not connected with your peers anymore. When you're in teams, they have that space that they can still keep talking and stay connected. So it's kind of like the virtual version of having that cafeteria to go to after class with your classmates um, or library learning commons, wherever your students may have went. So I'm hoping to see a lot more of that. I'd like to see us rethink a lot of the ways we're doing our classes. So we don't need to have a three hour class in person for a lot of classes. Let's see what we can do hybrid. What can we shift online? I know a lot of institutions beforehand were struggling with finding spaces to have classes. And now we've shown that you can do a lot of this stuff online. So by rethinking this, you can, you don't need all these new buildings you're building. 
we don't need that right now. You can do a lot more with online. And I know in some institutions, they were extending uh, hours of classes. I remember when I started at Durham, I think classes ended around six. And now I think they end around nine or 10. Um, just because we don't have the space and or we're getting so many more programs, the Durham region's growing so much. So um, there's been that growing pain and we've had to find solutions to make that work. But now I think we've shown that we can use digital technology to do a lot of this stuff and you can build great courses. I hope to see more uh, institutions invest in teaching and learning centers, add more positions, add instructional designers, more e-learning developers to help the faculty members create um, some of these courses. I think we need more faculty support in these areas. I can speak to the college uh, system specifically, but we have a lot of people who are so smart with their specific subject matter expertise, but they may not have the teaching and learning background yet. So let's have faculty or instructional design. Let's have faculty who are gonna support them, or sorry, let's have individuals in a teaching and learning center support them and help them with the e-learning development, help them with the instructional design, make those courses amazing in the LMS. And then you can even start to shift that over semester to semester that, that can be shared with all the different faculty members as well. So it's not like you're just investing something in one semester that it's gone. No, you've created an amazing course and it can be shared going forward um, and improved going forward as well. Yeah, that's amazing. Thanks, Brandon. That's good. So I've got five rapid fire questions for you. They don't need to be rapid fire answers, but I call them my fab five and uh, it's just all about you. Okay. So uh, are you ready? Yeah, go for it. Okay. What's your favorite food? Burgers. Yeah. Nice. I love a burger. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nick Baker, he, uh, he taught me that you can put, it was egg and something else. He suggested trying on a burger. I never did it before. And I, I came home and I told my wife about it. And, uh, the next day she was gracious enough to make me one like that. And it was incredible. So that's kind of been like, when I really want to spoil myself, that's kind of my, no, my, uh, new go-to. I can't remember what else he told me to try on it. There's like four different things. And I was like, I'll try the egg. The other stuff was a little outside of my comfort zone, but yeah, yeah nothing beats a good burger. <laughs> right on. What's your favorite movie or TV show? Um, I'm into superhero stuff. So I will go with, uh, Avengers throw a Avengers end game on and I will go to the basement and watch that for, uh, for a couple hours, a couple hours for the whole three and a half hours that it's on. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. What's your favorite band or genre of music? What are you listening to right now? Right now I have, uh, I have went over into the pop goes punk type of stuff. So you take one of those high beat Taylor Swift type of songs and then, uh, you put a, a punk twist on it. Um, I listen to anything though. Like I like country, uh, pop, rock, you name it. So I'm a high, high energy person. So as long as it's got a good beat, I'm happy. Do you have any, uh, um, uh, recommendations for pop goes punk? Cause I've never heard of that, uh, that, that, uh, kind of fusion before. I'll send you a couple afterwards. Okay. Uh, I'll send them to you over on Twitter and I'll, sure. I'll put it in your direct messages. So people aren't wondering why is he sending him that? <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's a couple of songs. I can't think of the names, uh, okay. the, uh, the bands, okay. but yeah, I'll send you a couple over after. I'd, I'd be interested to hear pop goes punk. That's uh, that, that, that's cool. What's your favorite go-to tech right now? Probably teams, probably Microsoft teams. It's just been a great way to stay connected with everybody. Um, 
So my, my job before I'd be working in the teaching and learning center and it was all people would come in lots of email phone calls with teams. It's making things. I think we are working better. We are supporting more faculty members and it's being done in a much easier way. Now, like I can log into their courses, show them a screen share and show them exactly how to fix things where before they would bring out their laptops and we'd go and sit beside them like this. It's more efficient. It's a lot quicker. And it's, uh, it's nice to be able to see people's faces right now too. So while being in a call like this right now in zoom with you, it's, it's awesome to see faces. You don't get to see them in person, but at least I can see your smiling face on the screen. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very cool. Last question, Brandon, who's been the most influential person in your life over the last year? There's some, uh, there's some runners up like George Valencianos, who's been my, uh, who's been my thesis supervisor. Uh, Elizabeth Child supported me throughout my time at Royal Roads as well. Roland, uh, an off scene from Ontario Tech has always supported me with research. And this was something very new to me. So uh, those individuals were great. Having peers like uh, Chad Flynn and Christy Boyce. Again, we had that support network the entire way through our masters. Having that is so important. Um, but I'm going to go and get some points with my wife here. And I'm going to say my wife, she uh, being a PSW during a pandemic is hard because she's working with one of the most vulnerable populations being the elderly. And, uh, so she goes there every day right now. Um, there's an outbreak at her work and they are just covered in PPE right now. Um, just to make sure everyone is staying safe and without experiencing it, you don't really know what they're going through. Right. So I never had to do that. I'm, I'm working from home, but as she talks to me about the amount of equipment she's wearing all day, and then she says, imagine putting all that on and just trying to breathe. And I'm like, yeah, and I really thought of it from that perspective. Um, so her explaining what that's like and having to go get tested um, multiple times a week. I think she said they're going up to three tests per week starting next week. Um, I, I had one of those and the, the doctor gave me a really funny look. Like maybe I, sh I shouldn't have been squirming the way I was while getting one of these uh, tests. So knowing that she does this three times a week uh, and is just a superstar with it, I'm going to throw that out to her. Okay. Very good. Very good. Yeah. That's well, your wife deserves a lot of credit for that. And, and as well as all those other workers in, in the front lines. And, um, we thank them. We thank them for their tireless effort, uh, and their diligence to, to keep people safe, not just the people in the institutions and homes and, and hospitals and all that other stuff, but their families. Right. And, uh, cause it's, it's not like the virus goes, okay, I'll just stay at work while you go home. It, it it's we know that it goes everywhere so big thank you to all the workers out there big thank you to your wife for for all the work that she's doing and putting in and keeping people safe and helping people get through this and keeping her family safe that's uh that's really important wonderful and yeah if you're up for having me on another one i'd love to talk more about my time at eCampus ontario that's something we didn't get into deep but that was out of my entire working experience in my life, that was the best uh, just over a year of my life when it came to work. They, uh, it was such a cool experience working at the provincial level, as, as you know, working with BC campus. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. We'll bring you back and, and that's what we'll dedicate that next uh, episode to is just the, the eCampus Ontario experience. <laughs> That'd be great. Awesome. Sounds good. Okay, perfect.
nightmare dressed like a daydream So it's gonna be forever Michigan. Thanks for checking out our cover of Taylor Swift's Blank Space. Check out the video of our debut single, Blue. Keep an eye out. Expect more from us. Hey, Taylor, if you're watching, my number is 248-820-6439. No, 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 no.